3: Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. Well, you magnificent nerds, I am here with one of the last episodes of my much-needed holiday. Of course, I'm recording this in advance, so I, at this point, I truly can't tell you how much I need this. (laughs) I'm... I'm so tired. Anyway, uh, this episode, I thought, is the perfect way to start off spooky season. Honestly, I'm a little bit heartbroken that I am away for these first few episodes in October. I absolutely love focusing a whole month on the spookiest shit that I can come up with, but I, I really did. I needed this time away to both write the novel that I really desperately want to bring to the world, but also just to, like, actually relax and not be constantly thinking about what podcast related thing I need to do at any given moment of the day, which is my life at all times. So that is all to say, I wanted to bring you one of my all time favorite spooky season episodes. I did this one last year, and it was It's just so wild, and I was really proud of how it turned out, how spooky I was able to make an episode. I mean, Greek mythology, finding spookiness in it is is often kind of weird, because most of it is sort of monstrosities or just, like, horrific things. This is certainly one of those. This is a re-airing of Erisichthon, the man who ate himself, (laughs) because because of Greek mythology. I mean, my gods, it's incredible. So please enjoy this, truly one of my favorite of the creepy, eerie, spooky episodes I've ever done. So happy October, happy spooky season. I will be back very soon with the freshest and spookiest shit that I can find in new episodes. In the meantime, though, Thank you all so much for listening to these re airs, to everything that I've put out over this month that I've been away. It's really, it's really appreciated. This is episode 95. Blood-soaked trees, Erisichthon eats himself, and bonus boogie women of ancient Greece. Today's spooky and gory as hell story comes from the region of Thessaly. This was and is an area northern Greece-ish, it's where Mount Olympus is, but don't let yourself think that makes people closer to the gods there, (laughs) certainly it doesn't in today's story. The story has its origins in Greek mythology, the poet Callimachus tells it in one of his hymns, but it's also told by my beloved poet, Ovid, and Ovid's version is, as is so often the way with him, far more violent and gory and, well, spooky. So, aside from a few bits and pieces, today's story comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses. In Thessaly, there is a king named Erisichthon. Erisichthon was not a pious man. In fact, he was quite the opposite. He had a habit of avoiding the necessary sacrifices and offerings to the gods. He didn't care for it and didn't see why he should. He was, after all, a king. And who were they but some concepts up in the sky? No, Erisichthon didn't bother with the gods, didn't give them anything at all. Not only did he avoid the necessary worship, though, there was also a time when Erisichthon outwardly scorned the gods, when he did all in his power to damage the goddess Demeter. Demeter had a sacred grove of trees within a forest in the region of Thessaly, one of her most beloved spots in all of Greece. There, among the many important, sacred trees that the goddess was devoted to, was a particular tree. An oak in Ovid, a poplar in Callimachus. Either way, it was old, very old, and so it was very big and very impressive. I don't know about you guys, but I come from a place where very big and very old trees are just about as sacred as they would have been to an ancient goddess like Demeter, Seriously, my island is full of old-growth rainforests where, you know, the trees have seen some things. So that's all I can imagine when I think about this very old and very big oak tree that was so beloved by Demeter, so sacred to her. It had seen some things. This was a very important tree. And so, when Erisic set out to cut down all the trees in Demeter's sacred grove, He wasn't just cutting down any old trees, and he wasn't just scorning the goddess by simply not sacrificing to her and not worshipping her. He was actively harming her, actively destroying something she loved. The oak tree most beloved by Demeter was surrounded even by offerings. The tree was decorated with garlands and votive offerings, all for the goddess of the harvest, Demeter. Beneath the tree, dryads, nymphs, would dance around holding hands. The tree was so big that it took fifteen Dreads holding hands to wrap their way around it. It was a very special tree. See, there were many people aside from the goddess who found this tree to be sacred and special. But Ersichthon didn't give a fuck. He wanted to cut it down. And why? We don't really have a why. For the sake of it? Because he needed some wood? When you have an ancient, sacred forest, a need for lumber is never an excuse. There are lots of other trees that are not quite so ancient, not quite so sacred. And now I'm talking a bit more to my provincial government than I am to Erisikthon. Go ahead and sign some petitions to stop logging in Vancouver Island's old-growth rainforest, would you? So Erisikthon set out to cut down Demeter's sacred grove, and particularly her deeply sacred oak tree. He wasn't about to do the work himself, either. He was that kind of king. He handed axes to his men and told them to get to work. Get rid of this incredible, beautiful, enormous, sacred old tree, would you? The men, though, knew that what they were being told to do wasn't right. They shrunk back at Erisichthon's orders, none of them willing to get even close to the sacred tree with an axe. "'Fine,' Erisichthon yelled, seeing their refusal. "'He snatched one of the axes back from his men and went to the tree himself. "'Snarling, he announced that he would bring down this tree even if it were Demeter herself. "'And with that, Erisichthon swung the axe at the ancient tree and it hit with a thud, "'ripping into the bark and taking a chunk out of the beautiful tree.' Just before the axe hit, though, the tree groaned and grumbled. The leaves shook above, loudly. Erisichthon pulled the axe from the tree, thinking nothing of the noises it had made. But when the axe was removed from the tree's bark, thick, dark blood gushed from the wound as though it were spurting from a body's main artery. Blood splattered out from the tree and across the face of Erisichthon, who stood, axe in hand, looking at the tree. Absolutely horrified, petrified, terror-stricken, the men around Erisichthon looked upon the tree as the blood poured from its wounded bark. One of the men, bravest of them, moved to stop Erisichthon from wounding the tree further, from further sacrilege against the goddess. He makes to grab the axe from Erisichthon's hand, but the king is quicker than this man, and before the man can grab the axe, he swings it around, away from the tree and at the man's own neck, severing his head in one swift blow. Blood spurts from the man's neck as he crumbles to the ground with another thud, the head rolling off in another direction, Blood is covering the forest floor now, blood of a tree and of the man who tried to stop the monstrous Erisichthon. With another snarl, Erisichthon turned from the man he's just ruthlessly, mercilessly killed and returns to the tree, hacking at it once more with his axe. Erisichthon continues to hack at the tree's trunk. Blood continues to flow, to spurt, to spray across Erisichthon, but he doesn't relent. He's in it now, caught in his own horrific sacrilege against the goddess. He can't stop now, can't take it back, and doesn't want to. He hacks and hacks, and blood oozes endlessly across the forest floor as the remaining men continue to look on in abject horror. Finally, as Erisichthon gets deep enough into the tree, a voice echoes from within it. A strong, loud voice calls from within. I am the nymph that lives within this tree, the nymph most sacred to the goddess Demeter. She calls from inside the dying tree. I prophesy as I die within this tree that your punishment, Erisichthon, is at hand. That much she says, keeps me content in my death. Even this doesn't stop Erisikthon or even cause him to pause in his hacking away at this sacred and enormous tree. Finally, he's done enough damage. Ropes pull at the tree and with a loud crack, it comes down in a rush of air and leaves. There's a loud and final thud as the beautiful tree hits the earth, crushing so many other trees in its wake. This description of the downed oak tree, the blood gushing from its wounds, the horror of Erisichthon's men and his murder of them too, comes from Ovid. I've chosen it because, well, there's a lot more blood in Ovid's. Much more visceral, horrifying, entertaining. The story also comes, as I mentioned, from the Greek poet Callimachus. His version is lacking in blood and gore, but it makes up for it in enormous incarnations of the goddess herself. Before the tree falls, which, as I mentioned, was a poplar, according to Callimachus, the goddess herself visits Erisichthon in her anger. She appears before the king and his men, tall as Mount Olympus, and speaks to him, telling him angrily, fine, let him cut down her sacred tree, let him build his palace with its wood, let him host banquet after banquet in that palace, built with her tree's death. She promises him punishment punishment that lines up, if less intricately, with Ovid's version. As usual, I do prefer Ovid's, but also wanted to tell you about the mountain-sized Demeter of Callimachus's. Back to Ovid now. The downing of the sacred oak tree and the trees it crushed when it finally fell destroys the grove of the Dreads, those nymphs of the goddess Demeter. There is nothing left to their sacred grove. Dressed all in black, the nymphs go to the goddess Demeter with all that has happened to their forest, telling her all that Erisichthon has done and insisting on his immediate punishment. Demeter, of course, agrees. How could she not? Certainly all that Erisichthon has done and the manner in which he did it requires the most severe of punishments. Downing a sacred tree is one thing, but the horror Erisichthon brought upon that whole forest, the man he murdered who'd tried to stop the king, the trees destroyed by the falling oak, all adds up to one of the most grievous of sins against the gods. Demeter begins his punishment by sending a blight upon the fields of Erisichthon. Those that were already ripe for the harvest are ruined, destroyed. But that isn't enough. Demeter plans to have Erisichthon, quote, devoured by famine. In the mythology, of course, famine is a character, a personification, a demon, the likes of cold, pallor, and terror. Demeter, though, isn't permitted to meet with famine, not as the gods of the harvest of agriculture, so she sends a nymph, an oread, to the depths of Scythia where the demons reside, where no food grows and requests the nymph ask Famine to travel to Erisikthon to hide herself within the man's stomach. That if she does this and does it right, no matter how much Erisikthon eats, he will still find himself more hungry than anyone can bear. Demeter goes on, explaining that if Famine holds out, preventing any of Demeter's own harvests to reach his stomach, he will truly be punished. Demeter's use of famine as punishment here is one of the most dramatic things she could do to Erisichthon. Demeter is the goddess of the harvest of agriculture. Essentially, this makes her the goddess of a full stomach, a good meal. The Greeks understood how important Demeter was to their survival. She brought them food, kept them alive. Her choosing then to go to her opposite, the personification of hunger and famine, is a drastic and severe decision.
2: Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.
3: On Demeter's order, the nymph travels to the Caucasus Mountains in search of famine. There she finds the woman, this personification of it, who looks, well, exactly as one might expect. She looks hungry. So, so hungry. Skin and bones, really. Fragile. From afar, afraid to get too close to famine, the nymph passes on Demeter's request of the demon. Quickly, the nymph starts to feel the effects of being just nearby this personification. She feels the pangs of hunger in herself, from the vicinity alone. So she passes along the message quickly, before leaving and returning to Thessaly. Famine agrees to Demeter's request, flying herself to Thessaly and into Erisichthon's palace, into his bedroom where he slept. There, she breathes herself into him, filling him with all her essence before heading back to her cave in the Caucasus Mountains. Famine takes hold of Erisichthon in that instant, just as intended, though he doesn't wake from it. But even in his dreams, he's taken over by his hunger. He dreams of feasting, of gorging himself on food. When he wakes, his desire to eat is overwhelming. Erisichthon wakes with one thought— He must fill himself with food immediately. He's starving, absolutely famished. He calls for all the food in his palace to be brought before him. His table is heaped with it, everything imaginable. From the land, from the sea, all the food at his disposal is placed before him. And he eats, he gorges, eating and eating all that he can. But nothing seems to fulfill his desires, nothing fills his belly, though he's eaten more than anyone naturally should in one sitting, it's not enough. As Ovid describes it, quote, Amid the feast he seeks still other feasts, what could have satisfied entire cities leaves him still famished. He can't stop, he must continue eating. Ovid likens it to the way the sea can perpetually receive the rivers and streams that flow into it without overflowing. How a fire can never have enough fuel. You can throw log after log onto the fire and it just continues to eat. This is how Erysichthon ate. How he continued to eat and eat and never feel as though he were full enough, never feel satiated. He still felt famished as though he simply must have more. Erisichthon ate himself out of all the money he had, but even that didn't fill his stomach. Still, he couldn't stop. Finally, all he was left with in the world was his daughter. A daughter who, according to Ovid, quote, merited a better father. And in case you were beginning to feel anything for Erisichthon... In Demeter's punishment, once he'd eaten himself out of all his riches and was left completely destitute with only his daughter to comfort him, he decided what he had to do next. Erisichthon sold his daughter for money to eat more food. He sold his daughter off into enslavement. She was sold off to a horrible slaveholder and was, quite rightly, horrified by her new situation, brought on by her father and the patriarchal bullshit that left women as the property of men. She wouldn't accept her fate, though, and one day she snuck away from her new life as a slave and found her way down to the beaches where she prayed to Poseidon. She prayed to Poseidon because, it seems, he'd once raped her. Yeah, so you know, they had a rapport. Greek mythology is so fucked up. Anyway, she prayed to Poseidon because of their cringe relationship. (laughs) But thankfully it worked. Poseidon listened to her prayers, and he transformed her into a man, a fisherman, just in time. Her master had just arrived there, on the beach, looking for her. He'd followed her footsteps and instead found this man fishing there. So he asked after her, "'I haven't seen any girl,' the fisherman replied. "'I've been here all day, just fishing, looking out at the sea.' The slaveholder was convinced. He believed this man because, well, he was a man. So he left the beach without his slave. And fortunately, the girl was able to transform back into her true self. But as much as this should have helped her situation, it didn't, because Erisikthon and all his hunger were still her father.' Now, he saw that he had a daughter who was able to transform herself. This was even more exciting. She would be worth so much more money now, he thought, because he's a fucked up asshole. So yes, he sold the poor daughter again, and again she transformed and got herself out of that one. And again, and again. She became a deer, a bird, a mare, all that she needed in order to escape the situations her father put her in, or, at times, simply to help him get what he needed to feed his insatiable, unending hunger. Finally, though, even his loyal daughter couldn't save him from himself, or from Demeter's punishment. Eventually, there was nothing more that Erisichthon could eat. He was out of options, save for one. Erisichthon, in his obsessive, horrifying hunger, finally, in the end, began to eat his own flesh from off his limbs. He started with his arms, gnawing at the skin and threw it into the flesh itself. He continued, any piece of his own body he could reach. Eventually, he'd cut off the pieces he couldn't reach. Imagine the bloody, horrifying mess as he kept going in the end aresicthon ate himself to death quite literally he ate his own flesh to feed his hunger ate his own self until he couldn't eat any more until he'd eaten himself to death But he's not the end of our spooky episode for today. I wanted to end this episode with a less self-cannibalistic bang. Erisichthon's story is so horrific for his poor daughter, who, you guessed it, isn't given a name. So let's finish today's episode with a look at some of the spookier women of mythology. I know I've mentioned some of these characters before, oh, so, so briefly, in the very early days of this podcast but they deserve a revisit. Lamia was the daughter of Poseidon, and whether she was always a sea monster or was transformed into one is up for debate. In the story of her transformation, we must once again face the idea that Hera, goddess of women, punished yet another woman for the transgressions of her husband. Frankly, I'm getting tired of that version, though, it's simply not realistic. I know, Zeus was all-powerful, and so could she really have punished him? Regardless, these stories just reek of the patriarchy of the men telling the stories and writing them down. They're tainted. But still, they're what we have in the mythology. So, according to that horrible tale, Lamia was with Zeus and bore him children. Hera found out and kidnapped the children, driving Lamia to madness, the poor woman. It was believed then that she took out her anger at Hera on other children, snatching them from their beds. A boogeyman character. But again, it seems a stretch, a very patriarchal stretch. There are two versions of Lamia. There's that one, how she became a child-snatching boogeyman. And there's a version where she was always a sea monster. A great and horrible sea monster. In that, she eventually became the mother of one of the early Pythias of the Oracle and one of the possible origins of the monster Scylla, that famous sea monster of the Odyssey fame, and the beautiful novel Circe. Lamia's name translates, according to the beloved website Theoi, to large shark which, let me tell you, makes me love her so much more. I fucking love sharks. And that there's a woman attributed to being a large shark, one of the most famous of Greek sea monsters? Yes, please. Some even conflate her with the famous sea monster Keto, the mother of Medusa, the sea monster who Andromeda was saved from. The concept of Lamia, though, is tricky to pin down. Was she a shark? A child-snatching boogeyman? Both? Later, her name was also pluralized Lamiae. Beautiful, ghostly women who lured men away to feast on their young flesh and blood. They were vampires. And speaking of, there's also the ampusa. Sometimes in those later myths, Lamiae are considered a type of ampusa. Ampusa are mysterious. They are monsters, that's for sure, and as far as I can understand them, they're women, too. But what they appear as can vary. There are the Lamiae in the later myths, those women who are the most vampiric of ancient monsters, Other empusa could take on different forms, transforming from women into monsters or things with lots of legs. Many of these forms, though, would quite simply gorge on the flesh of men. The queen witch herself, Hecate, may have even employed the empusa to do her bidding at times, sending them out to frighten travellers. Hecate really enjoyed fucking with people. We may not have many stories about her, but those that we have include a lot of intentionally being scary or murderous, and I kind of love it. I know you all love Hecate, so if you're needing more about her, go back to the episode from last year. It's called Spooky Halloween Special, Magic and Mayhem, the Origin of Medea and Witches of Ancient Greece. But back to Hecate's loyal ladies, the Ampusa. They're sometimes described as having one bronze leg and one donkey leg? Or more legs? The leg situation is up for debate. Frankly doesn't sound too scary, so I like to imagine them a bit more mysteriously. Just women in the darkness there to scare the living shit out of you, maybe feast on a bit of your flesh in the process. It's said that the Empusa, along with another class of somewhat generically ghostly women monsters, the Mormo, were often used by parents as threats. As in... You better be good or the empusa or the mormo will visit you tonight. This type of quality parenting has been around for so long. The fact that these types of monsters of Greek mythology, the ones people feared on a day-to-day basis, who they thought possible to run into on the streets and the darkness of the forests at night, were almost always women, absolutely says something about the culture, the patriarchy of ancient Greece. But frankly, I also kind of love it so many boogie women of ancient Greece. Nerds, as always, really thank you so much. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I appreciate you listening along while I've been on holiday. I appreciate the support so many of you have given to me on social media and all of that about how much I need this time away. You know, I'm I'm so excited to be back and be rested and just Feel ready to give you the absolute best and spookiest episodes for the rest of October. So thank you all. You are all the best. I am Liv and I love this shit.
0: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, Ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R I T E R U G.com today to schedule a free in home estimate or to find a location near you. 24 month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
2: Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.